Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. Today we're going to talk about two of the most popular books in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Peter. And you're supposed to laugh at that because most people have no idea what's in 1st and 2nd Peter. And next week's even better because no one knows what is in the book of Jude. Well, maybe not no one. Maybe Elsa knows. Um, but uh, I've got a week to study to know myself. Just kidding. So let's start with First Peter. First Peter is, and I'm going to begin this for both of these books. I've mentioned this in other classes. Uh, the book is attributed to Peter as well as Second Peter. Um, there is people don't know if Peter himself wrote this. If A secretary of his wrote this, if a disciple of his wrote this. Uh, And especially with 2 Peter, we're almost sure Peter did not write that book. That said, these are kind of modern worries. Uh, Sure, ancient Christians, medieval Christians probably thought this came from Peter because about 100 years after, it's like, oh, it says Peter. Um, But again, in the ancient world, the locus of meaning was not dependent upon the author. We're pretty sure that many of Plato's dialogues were not written by Plato, and none of us have worries about that. They were written in the vein of Plato or by a disciple of Plato. Uh, But I just want to start with that, because you will hear people talk about that. Nonetheless, 1st and 2nd Peter are found in the New Testament, and so we've got to, at the very least, Take them seriously. So, First Peter. First Peter is one of those letters that we call a circular letter. Unlike Paul's letters that were written to this church or this area, uh, this letter explicitly talks about churches throughout the diaspora or the dispersion. And that helps us to realize, and that, that's actually very important, because the church, the members of these churches are primarily Gentile-dominated. There are some Jews, but mostly Gentiles. And the author of 1 Peter is writing to Gentiles as if they're Jews, or as if they're the chosen people. He writes to, these Christians here are experiencing hostility. Um, they're hostility, experiencing hostility from pagans around them because of their faith. Now, some people think these Christians were experiencing active persecution, which is possible. But I think the tenor of the letter leans more to they were experiencing hostility from their peers or the people they used to hang out with. You're weird now. You've changed. Rather than this letter talking about active persecution, Christians being thrown in jails, etc. That's up for debate. That's my opinion. So... This author, the purpose of this letter is to encourage these Christians in the midst of their suffering. 
Again, this is scripture. This is encouraging us today as Christians in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of hostility that we may encounter from those around us, from those who might think being Christian is weird or backward or whatever. So how does this letter begin? This letter, again, primarily Gentile Christians, but just like he mentions to the people of the diaspora, of the Jewish diaspora, those scattered after the fall of the first temple, he also addresses this to the chosen people, those who are exiled around the world. So the author is making clear here that the largely Gentile church is the chosen. They've become the chosen. They've been engrafted as the Pauline language. But he's writing to them as if they are sons and daughters of Abraham. Here he's very much like Paul. The author is emphasizing that these people who were once no people, who had no family, who were once pagan, they have a new family. They are of the family of Jesus Christ. And he says that, that you, Christians, through baptism, have been born anew to a living hope. So, what the living hope, the diaspora that they are in the midst of, so they're in the midst of this present suffering. They've been scattered among the pagans. They're experiencing hostility. They are not in their heavenly home. So there's a sense of longing here. We're experiencing these trials, these tribulations. We long for our home. We are in the midst of being persecuted. We long for something better. But, so, First Peter jumps right into it. He uses, and I want to start off with that, this Old Testament imagery, because he uses it throughout his book. Not just calling them the chosen, not just calling them members of the diaspora, not just that they're just like the exiles of the people of Israel. He talks then later about, he uses imagery of the exodus. Uh, he uses imagery of the Israelite experience in Sinai. He, he says, much like uh, Moses tells the people of Israel, as they're awaiting the Passover, gird up your loins. The author here says, gird up your minds. Uh, the people of Israel who uh, were in the desert at Sinai, do you remember this from way back when, the first five books of the Old Testament? They are released, they, they experience this exodus, they're free, but what do they do? They want to return to the flesh pots in Egypt. He says the same thing to the Christians here. Do not return to your former way of life, to your former ignorance. And then he makes the call, much like God calls the people of Israel, be holy because I am holy. So you see, the author of 1 Peter is saturated in the imagery of the Old Testament. And he's using all this Old Testament imagery to show these people that you are now of the family of God. You are now sons and daughters of Abraham. You now have uh, the stories of the Old Testament, as we call them. They're your family stories. Uh, and it's not just theirs. It's almost like over the top. I mean, he talks about the golden calf, the paschal lamb, lamb, and then he talks about God's ransom of Israel. Um, and he uses this ransom language to say... But you were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus. 
So you see how this author is connecting all this to Old Testament stories, but then making it new. Uh, There is that Pauline sense of there being something greater here now. Now, 1 Peter is oftentimes called a baptismal liturgy. Uh, Maybe an original part of 1 Peter was a baptismal liturgy or homily. And notice, and I think this can be hard for those of us who come from very Protestant backgrounds, is that this really is this deliverance, this, the fact that we've been made a new Israel, a new people, there's a new exodus. This all, the author of, Saint, of 1 Peter says, comes through baptism. And through baptism, all the privileges of Israel are now the privileges of Christians. And baptism uh, in 1 Peter, he's, he's using the Passover imagery. Do you remember the story? The, the, you would paint the blood of the animals on the doorposts and the angel of death passed over uh, the people of Israel. Well, baptism is like that for Christians. We have received this cleansing, this forgiveness of sins through baptism. So we've been made forgiven, we've been cleansed, we've also been made a new family. So what is the appropriate behavior for those who have been given a new family, for those who have been given a new dignity. Well, that's what First Peter really focuses in on. He says that given this dignity that has been bestowed upon you by virtue of baptism, there is a standard of conduct uh, that can set an example for those surrounding pagans. Now, he gives this standard of conduct It's interesting. It's less so, it seems, an appeasement for God, the way we oftentimes think of obedience. It's more a, the pagans speak ill of you, so how do we get them to not speak ill of us? How do we get them to be attracted by our message? Well, we act in a way that makes the gospel attractive. So, and this is also where problems come in for our contemporary period for the book of 1 Peter. Because Peter, living as he is with other Christians who are a minority in a great empire, does not write about upending social norms. We talked about how Paul does that a little in the later letters of Paul are like, hey, we're in the minority here. We're not trying to rock the boat. Well, here too, Peter is not interested in in upending the social and domestic order, even if it's unjust. So it seems like even, so First Peter thinks this coming of Jesus is soon, is imminent. He has no concept of Christians being a majority in the empire, of Christians running the empire, of anything like that. So what he says is essentially the, the message of all the, the list of codes he gives are that we are to exemplify patience and the self-giving of Christ. Christ experienced hostility. Christ experienced persecution. Christ was patient and self-giving in the midst of it. So the reason why I give that kind of longer preamble is that First Peter does say, be subject to the emperor. Even though he calls the empire Babylon, which is meant to be, this is not a good place. He does say, and this is something Christians have had to wrestle with, and unfortunately uh, in the American South, uh, and and throughout America, we've used this as a justification for slavery, 
But he tells slaves who were in the congregation, be subject to your masters. Again, he's not upending social norms. He's saying, don't rock the boat. Be an example to your masters so that they might come to know the gospel. Uh, here also is the stuff that we, we don't really like so much today. He, he talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. And he definitely talks more about the wives being subject to your husbands. Again, so that they may see your works and believe. Now, this is not the only part of the canon that talks about how the social order should be. We see elsewhere in the canon women proclaiming the gospel, right? We talked about Phoebe a while ago. So what some do is they take texts like this and texts like those texts that may or may not have been written by Paul, and they make a whole systematic theology of how men and women are to interact, uh, masters and slaves, etc. But I think we have to keep in mind we're dealing with the whole canon here, and the thrust of this text is Christians are experiencing hostility. He encourages that. How could they be a witness to those around them? So, it's not okay to have slavery in the U.S. Uh, there are emperors who are evil, and like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we can stand against them. Uh, we definitely have the witness of other scriptures there. Here is another side of the canon that's saying, and I think this might not be the worst thing to hear at times, because right now we're in an age of, if you're not rocking the boat, you are essentially complicit in all that is evil. And there's truth to that. But there's also, for people who are minorities living in a hostile empire, of, we're just trying to survive, and we're trying to be attractive. We can talk more about that at the end in a second. That's the best I can do on this tough, tough issue. Now, again, and the one other thing I want to say is, even being subject to the empire, to the emperor, he's saying, be subject to them to show them that we are not evildoers. There are a lot of these things that were going on about Christians. Christians are cannibals because they eat of the body and blood. Christians are atheists because they reject uh, all the gods around except their own. Uh, Christians are bad people for whatever reason. He's trying to emphasize, be good, upstanding folk, so that they can't make these charge against you. Uh, now, he goes on further and says that he acknowledges their suffering, the hostility they're experiencing, that they've been reviled and abused by their fellow Gentiles. And the, thr- the, 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 the gist of this seems to be that Eugene here, he's hanging with his old crowd. And he's, you know, dancing, he's doing drugs, he's doing all this regular stuff that all his friends are doing. And one day he gets converted and he's like, you know what? I want to live in the light and not self-destructively. And so those friends, they see that your lifestyle has changed and they're like, What the heck, man? You've changed. Have you ever had a friend do that? You've changed. Essentially, this is what this is kind of all... They're being reviled for this this reason. Um, But we have the example of Christ, is what Peter is saying. Christ was reviled. Christ experienced all this. You are experiencing nothing different 
than what Christ has himself. You are alienated from your pagan peers because of the way you live your lives. But you will be vindicated. Just as Christ was vindicated, you will be. So even if they are hostile with you until the day you die, remember this. Christ experienced this. Christ was vindicated. And so will you. So in the meantime, what do we do? We love even when we are cursed. We serve and support our brothers and sisters in faith as they are experiencing their own persecution. So again, what Peter doing, is doing here is very little, isn't very different from what Jesus says, right? When he talks about turning the other cheek. What Peter is saying is love, even when people don't love you, which is so easy to say and so hard to do. And let's keep in mind, it appears that the reason this needed to be written is probably because people were not loving. So when you don't love, remember, this is written for you and me, assuming most likely that at times we will not. And to never forget the baptism, the cleansing, the washing that has taken place. So the author also writes some some interesting things, some things that were very interesting at the time especially because these ideas weren't in the air. But he says that Christ showed that suffering is the path to glory. Therefore, um, if you're like me, you probably avoid suffering at all costs. And I I think it's okay to not run after suffering. (laughs) Um, But when the fiery ordeal comes, do not be surprised. Christ experienced this. This is the way to glory. And Peter himself, or the author who's writing, says, I am a witness to the suffering of Christ. I've experienced these sufferings, but I have also partaken in the divine nature. So it's not just, well, let's revel in our suffering. Let's experience the suffering. And that's how you know you're a good Christian. He says, I've experienced the suffering of Christ, but I have also partaken of the glory to be revealed. And keep that in mind, that glory to be revealed, the divine nature, because we're going to look at that. Second Peter uh, has that as well. I think sometimes we Christians, we talk about experiencing persecution, hostility, and we don't go to that next part. But we are partakers of the divine nature as well. Uh, and finally, and this ends the book, and we'll jump to the next one. He encourages the leaders of the community, the, the, the priests, the, the pastors, the presbyters, he tells them, take care of the flock. Uh, and he calls them and all the people to be watchful. And isn't this the message of Advent on some level? To stay awake, O oh, sleeper, wake up. And he, he says that famous line, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, which might make us feel like, oh, we should be really afraid. On one hand, it's saying that evil is real. Uh, that we're not just dealing with flesh and blood, much like St. Paul says. But I think it's really important, just like we're experiencing these sufferings and being partakers of the glory to be revealed, nobody reads the next verse in which Peter consoles. He says, essentially, he, Christ pledges that when you experience this struggle, as the adversary 
is prowling around looking. Christ pledges to confirm, strengthen, and establish you before and after you've suffered. So Christ is there with us in the midst of the suffering, and Christ pledges to strengthen and establish us in the midst of it. So that's really First Peter. Again, a letter written to a primarily Gentile audience, but he is saying, you are Israel. You are the chosen people. They suffered in the wilderness. So will you. And as you do, I am there with you. This suffering in some strange way can be a path to glory. Things I don't like to hear, but maybe if you're an actual sufferer, or you're Christians who are being persecuted, this message can be a message of hope. That God is not abandoning us. That in the midst of the suffering is the path to glory. In the midst of the suffering is the partaking of the glory to be revealed. So one final note, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I want to I talk about this. Um, in 1 Peter, we have this really interesting verse that suggests, there's been debates about this, that Christ descended into hell. This isn't the only place, but this is one of the places where we see that the part in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. Um, and what, I just want to talk about two interpretations of that. Um, he preaches to the spirits in prison. Uh, and one, probably the oldest interpretation back in the, the second century, was that Christ went to hell, or some Christians wrote limbo, in order to announce to the deceased saints that heaven was now open for them. And not just that, but also to grant sinners a second chance. For those who didn't follow the way, here I'm preaching to you. So proclaiming the victory, but also offering a second chance. That's the first interpretation. The other interpretation, which is held by biblical scholars like Raymond Brown and others, they say that First Peter uh, has the risen Christ go down to hell to proclaim his victory and crush the powers of sin and death. Kind of like a Christus victor. Now, I don't know how to adjudicate between those two, and I don't know why they can't both be true. Uh, but I just wanted to say that. So that passage where we read in the Creed, uh, it's not only here, but it's most explicitly here. He descended into hell. And there is a sense here from the oldest times in the church, this is uh, an announcement to the saints who have gone before, the Old Testament saints. Your time has come. Announcement to those who did not accept or were not there. Um, here's the gospel. And or crushing Satan under his feet. Uh, which is good news, right? Crushing injustice once and for all. Um, yeah. I don't want to get too into that. We can, you can ask questions about that if you want. So now Second Peter. Second Peter, if I can find it right here. So Second Peter, again, probably, probably the latest book in the New Testament written. Some people even think probably about 130 A.D. It's very possible. So again, it's, it's very likely that Peter himself didn't write this. Uh, it's possible, but most don't think so. Uh, now, Second Peter 
presents itself as Peter's farewell discourse. Much like 2 Timothy presented itself as Paul's farewell, last will and testament. We have a very similar thing here with 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter, uh, there's a call to progress in virtue. Uh, Essentially, he's saying, have faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, affection for each other. Again, emphasizing in harmony with 1 Peter, love. Uh, Now, in this book, we talked a little bit about how Peter talks about having partaken of the glory to be revealed. But right at the beginning of this book, the author says that he wants his addressees fellow Christians, to become sharers of the divine nature. Uh, And there's been a lot of debate about this. In the the Eastern Orthodox Church, this is where they get the concept of theosis or deification. Um, Saint Athanasius writes in his book On the Incarnation, which is very influential for uh, what becomes the Nicene Creed, etc. He says that God became a human so that a human might become God. Now that should kind of worry our Protestant ears. We, we do want to maintain the, 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 uh, the distinction between God and God's creation. Um, but when you press most Orthodox Christians, they're not saying that we become of the same essence of God, that we, you know, we become part of the Godhead. What they're saying, I think, is that a Western interpreter of what the Eastern Christians are saying is not very different from what Paul talks about. And Paul talks about being uh, united with Christ. There's a union with Christ that occurs. That is a mystery. Um, but at the same time, we're, yeah, we're united, but we're not of the essence of God. So it's not that different from what we in the West call sanctification. But they do think it's different. It's a little bit more, if you know Wesley, Wesleyan holiness traditions, uh, where, uh, and I'm not that big a fan of this, so I'm probably not going to do it justice, so forgive me, Wesleyan, and correct me, but of, uh, of achieving Christian perfection. Now, most people think Wesley probably went a little too far on that, but others in the Wesley, Wesleyan traditions say that there is this notion beyond even sanctification, that we're experiencing something even larger. Some of my Eastern... Orthodox friends say that is similar to what we're talking about, except we want that language of us partaking of the divine nature, of us becoming one with that in some sense. Now, I say all that only to tell you I don't have any clue about how, what to do with that. But I find it interesting, and I think that we Christians might do well to listen to one another. Uh, And especially in the West here, if it is that notion of us being united with Christ... Um, I'm not worried about that at all. So that's all. That's all. The big kind of maybe sidebar. But it happens at the beginning of 2 Peter. Um, Now, when 2 Peter talks about making progress in virtue, he's not necessarily saying um, you're going to become perfect. What he essentially is emphasizing is that you have been cleansed from your sins. Again, he has that baptism language. Baptism was a washing You've been cleansed, um, and you're to never forget this. You're to never forget this, that you, something has changed in you by virtue of this deed, and you have become a partaker of the divine nature. <laughs> um, 
Peter is also really concerned in this letter to say that we are not, that the resurrection happened, but not just the resurrection, but Jesus is coming again. Again, this may have been written later, and people are wondering, the first generation has died out. What's Jesus taking his time for? We thought he was coming soon. The author here is making it clear, no, Jesus is coming soon. Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus being transfigured. Jesus transfigured before his eyes. Jesus was who he said he is. But not only that, but he is truly coming again. This is where we have that text about uh, time for God is not like it is for us. The thousand years is like a day for God. And, you know, later speculation on theology is God is wholly other than his creation, so time doesn't mean anything. Or or not that time doesn't mean anything, but God is not reduced to time. So essentially this book is all about confronting false teachers and saying that, yes, Jesus is, in fact, coming again. There are these false teachers who are denying the second coming and are now saying, oh, we can live in revelry and enjoy it. That's what the freedom of the Christian means. But if you read even people like Martin Luther closely, that's not what they're saying the freedom of the Christian is. Uh, this is just straight-up antinomianism. This is straight-up like, embrace your sin um, because Jesus isn't coming back. Peter is saying it may take a while, and the reason for it is to let more and more people repent, come in, uh, but in, in the delay, we see God's forbearance. We see him allowing a time for repentance. He does say, much like we talked about in church, it's the Advent call, to be ready, to be awake. He will come like a thief. So be, be aware, live lives of holiness and godliness now. Don't have spot or blemish. Be on guard against deceit and make progress. But again, that progress is less a a moving forward without looking back. It is to come back to that baptism. You will experience this partaking of the divine nature through your life by being watchful and and remembering. So there's a whole lot in this book. There's a whole lot about teaching about money, about sex. And the tone of this book is pretty harsh. But it seems the overall message of 2 Peter is to awake, O sleeper. Christ is coming again. It is real. It is assured. And his delay is only for our good. That is the message of 2 Peter. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal Sanchi Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live. Or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.